Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merc and fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about mental health and our brains. I've been thinking about preventative medicine and the mind-mind connection. I've been thinking about anxiety, depression, genetics, and the power of fear and vital medicine. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Reed Budson. He majored in chemistry and philosophy, received his medical degree from Harvard, and is a professor of neurology at Boston University and a lecturer at Harvard and chief of cognitive and behavioral neurology at the Veterans Affairs Boston Healthcare System. He's a co-author with Dr. Maureen K. O'Connor of the new book, Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. Welcome, Dr. Budson, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. I want to start with your two full pages, single-spaced list of achievements in uh, education, published papers and books, lectures, and teaching. So my first question is, how do you have time to have hobbies, running, skiing, yoga, family time, and tennis? Well, that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I, uh, I do enjoy uh, doing a lot of uh, different things, and I, I find that if you spend the time uh, to do things that recharge the batteries, like playing tennis and skiing and spending time with your family and doing yoga and meditation, then it uh, helps get those batteries recharged for all my uh, academic and clinical pursuits. And were you born just a driven kid? Um, is that your, uh, your, where your home is where you are just driving forward furiously? Yeah, that's very, yeah, that, that's a good question. So uh, <clears throat> my wife would probably say uh, absolutely yes, that that's just uh, uh, how I was uh, wired. I I do feel that yeah, But she whenever... didn't know you as a kid, so she can't no, this, answer that question. Yeah, this is true, but we, we met in college, so she's known me a long time. And uh, But I, I do feel, you know, if you're going to do something, you know, I'm one of those completion persons, you know, I'm like, if you're going to start something, let's finish it. Um, I do like to see a tangible outcome of what happens, whether that's, a, you know, a patient uh, getting, you know, good care or a research project getting completely done and ending up with a published paper or a book, you know, uh, not just started to be written, but actually uh, getting finished. So, um yeah, so I think a lot of it is I'd like to, uh, you know, I like to see the the tangible outcomes of what I do. And what drove you to this specific field of medicine? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. So, uh, you, you know, when you think about what you're going to do in life, it has to be some combination of what you like and, and what you're good at. And um, where I realized that that intersection uh, for me was combining, uh, you know, the field of medicine, helping people with uh, understanding cognition, the mind, the brain, uh, thinking, and, and memory. I really have been fascinated about those types of things, actually, since I was in high school. And I remember, you know, debating with my friends about, you know, how is it possible, you know, that this lump of, of tissue inside our skull can, you know, produce things like thought and consciousness and memory. And that's one of the reasons, of course, that I became a, a philosophy major as one of my majors in, in college to really try to, um, 
you know, sort of get a handle on, you know, on some of these sorts of big questions. And I, I realized that I could uh, study it in no better way than in the living human being by actually uh, taking a look at individuals uh, and looking at normal memory, but also individuals that had uh, problems with different parts of the brain, whether it was due to a stroke, the resection of a brain tumor, or a disease like um, Alzheimer's. And so that's what started me down the path to become not just a neurologist, but a cognitive uh, behavioral neurologist. It's sort of, you know, the intersection of all the things that um, I find uh, interesting. And I also, you know, I I find a, a great pleasure of being able to help people even with a difficult disease where there is no cure. And I, I think that um, there are many fields of medicine where, uh, you know, it's a little bit happier, you can actually cure people. But a lot of medicine, you know, you just have to treat people and, and do the best, even in the face of a difficult disease. And I feel this is one where I can make a positive difference in someone's life, even if I can't cure their memory problems. It also seems based on the time that you chose to be born, you couldn't have picked a better one as far as a more exciting era to study how the brain works. Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, we have tools today including uh, PET scans and uh, MRI scans and uh, uh, functional uh, EEG that can all have different windows into the physiology, the anatomy of the brain and be able to correlate those things with uh, people's uh, uh, function. So absolutely. And to a shift in understanding uh, of how the brain works and how the different parts of the brain work. And I remember when I grew up, you th- it was you were all told, you know, if, if brain cells die, that's it. You know, you better not do whatever you're doing because you've got that limited amount. The, the brain can't regenerate in any way. Absolutely. I was actually taught that in, in medical school as well. You know, that was the dogma. And then, you know, we learned sort of little by little, oh, we can actually make uh, brain cells uh, throughout life. And, you know, it's one of the uh, exciting things that we talk about in the book that uh, people can actually do to uh, benefit their brains is aerobic exercise, which releases growth factors that actually causes uh, an increase in brain volume, uh, more brain cells, and that correlates with better memory function. And this has been studied not only in healthy young adults, but in healthy older adults. So it, it really, you know, it really is amazing, you know, what the brain can do. And I think it's amazing that, you know, it's like, you want to improve your memory function, you know, go, go for a, a walk or, or a jog or, you know, a swim or whatever, uh, a bike ride, whatever you like to do. And you can actually uh, grow the size of your brain. It's just amazing. Well, and it's in line with the new thinking, too, that the different sides of the brain aren't separate entities and that the brain's not somehow a separate entity from the rest of our body and physiology. Yes. No, that, that is, is very true. And that's probably one of the new frontiers that's really just getting going is, you know, how do all the different parts of the body uh, work together um, I mean, the relationship between the brain and the immune system is a, a very, very exciting uh, field of research. And 
one of my uh, colleagues uh, in Boston uh, at Mass General Hospital, Rudy Tanzi, uh, he has done some very exciting work about the uh, role of infection in the immune system in Alzheimer's and how he uh, believes that um, one of the reasons that people get these amyloid plaques in the brain that can cause Alzheimer's, it's actually related to the body's response to infections. And you know, it's, that's just you know, one small example of, of what you're saying about how you know, we can't just look at the brain in isolation. We have to look at it with the other systems in the body. And later in the conversation, I want to talk about the tangles that developed and sort of maybe why that response. But I want to start with uh, something you had said early in the book. When asked why this book and why now, you mm -hmm. said, we often wish we had more time, uh, more time to explain. And I'm wondering, why isn't there enough time? Um, and haven't you found enough time? And what is it you most want to be able to explain to, to patients? Sure. Yes. So, you know, it it's unfortunate that in a typical uh, healthcare visit that's uh, reimbursed by uh, Medicare and other insurance, you know, most physicians have approximately 40 minutes for a new patient and 20 minutes for a follow-up visit. And so typically, you know, there I am in a 20-minute visit having to tell someone that they have an incurable uh, uh, neurological disorder that's going to slowly, uh, you know, damage their ability to think and remember and, you know, perform cognitive functions and, you know, do things in daily life that's ultimately going to, you know, have them lose their memory entirely. So I've got to communicate, you know, this obviously very emotionally laden message and then I also want to tell them about, well, you know, what's the rationale between why I'm uh, uh, thinking that they have Alzheimer's disease and I don't think it's normal aging or perhaps that I don't think it's, you know, depression or some other uh, disorder. I'm also prescribing them a medicine at this visit, trying to explain to them, you know, how the medicine works and why we're prescribing this medicine and why we're not prescribing that medicine. And then I want to tell them things like about the right foods to eat, the right exercises to do, and all these other things. There's just not time, you know, in a 20-minute visit to do all these things. And I will tell you as an aside that I am very lucky that in one of the settings that I'm, I practice in, I actually do have a little bit more time. I can actually spend an hour with patients uh, going over those uh, things. So, so I do feel lucky that in one of the uh, settings that I practice, I am actually able to spend more time. I can actually spend an hour with people. But even an hour is just not enough time to tell people all the things I'd like to communicate and usually all the things they'd like to learn. So that was a big reason that we wrote the book. So you wrote the book with Maureen O'Connor. Uh, what's the difference, what's, what distinguishes a, a neurologist with a neuropsychologist? And why, the, why did you decide to pair up with Dr. O'Connor to, to work on this book? Yeah, so, so a neurologist is a uh, physician, a medical doctor who uh, went to medical school and then did uh, additional uh, uh, training after uh, medical school, uh, learning about how to take care of diseases of the brain. 
And you know, one subspecialty of neurology is cognitive and behavioral neurology, where we uh, work on uh, disorders that affect thinking and memory. A neuropsychologist uh, is a psychologist uh, by training, and uh, so not not a, a medical doctor, but a doctor of uh, the mind, uh, as it were. And then the psychologist goes on to do advanced training in the administration and interpretation of uh, pencil and paper tests and sometimes computerized tests that allow one to determine what cognitive uh, systems are working well in the brain and what cognitive systems are not working well. And then uh, given those results to infer what parts of the brain and brain systems are and are not working well. So as you can imagine, I work very closely with neuropsychologists when I'm diagnosing uh, different brain disorders. So although as a neurologist, I might do a very brief pencil and paper test that maybe takes you know, 10, 15 minutes, the neuropsychologist will do a much more extensive interview of the cognitive uh, problems and maybe spend somewhere between one to three hours doing pencil and paper uh, testing with the individual. And it's really like a very detailed exam of what part of their thinking and memory are working and what part of it is not. So maybe, oh, I was going to say, maybe we could talk about how, you know, you really are operating as detectives um, because there are so many factors that you lay out in the book that kind of affect our brain and memory and our ability to recall uh, events and memories. And you work through the book, you create these composites of characters. And maybe throughout the interview, we can kind of talk about some of them and um, sure. and how you focused on them. And, and because one of the things, you know, you, it is, comes up again and again throughout the book is this screening process, which seems it's very different from maybe any other ailment that someone or concern someone might come to to a doctor for. And you see that some of the tests aren't sensitive enough to pick up um, subtle deficits, and especially with people that are very well educated or very bright. So I'm guessing if you ever went to the doctor thinking, well, maybe I'm having some memory problems, um, they, they would have a hard time sussing out just from some of some of the initial tests as to what was really going on. You're absolutely right. It it really it is an interesting thing that um, you know, unlike most uh, uh, biological tests, uh, when we're doing a screening test that is reliant on uh, uh, assessing someone's thinking and memory, it really matters where their thinking and memory was starting from. And we know that people who are well-educated or even people who may not have a lot of formal education but are just very bright, that they are going to score higher on a sort of standardized test of thinking and memory even before they, um, you know, even before they're having any uh, types of problems. And so if someone is scoring in the average range of a screening test, the tricky thing to know is, are they scoring the average range uh, because 
they started off with an average uh, IQ and now they're perfectly fine. They don't have a brain disease and that's why they're scoring average. Or are they scoring in the average range because, in fact, they started off a lot higher, but then they dropped down to this average range because there's been a brain disease that's caused their thinking and memory to decrease. And so a neuropsychologist will have uh, more sensitive tools to tease this apart. And it's one of the reasons that if you are someone that goes to your uh, primary care doctor because you're worried about uh, your memory and they give you a, a common test where they have you try to remember three words and draw a clock, well, you know, if you can't remember, you know, the three words and you can't draw a clock, I think one can clearly say that, yes, something is wrong uh, with your thinking and memory. But there's a lot of people out there who can still remember three words and draw a clock that have real uh, bona fide problems with their thinking and memory. And that would be an example of a simple screening test that would not be sensitive enough uh, to, uh, to pick up uh, some types of memory problems. Well, and so let's talk about Sue. And and when you just talked about those three words, I'm like, huh, if I was like, hadn't slept in the last week, or maybe when I was nursing and up like every half hour, like three words might have been really hard. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so there can be false negatives as well as false positives. You can, it can happen uh, uh, either way. But hopefully, if there is a a trigger, if the screening test is positive, people do understand that it's just a screening test. And so hopefully, uh, if the screening test is positive, you get a full evaluation. I'm, uh, I'm more concerned actually about the other way, because when you get the full evaluation, if it wasn't really positive, it's just because you were up all night, which is a common cause of memory problems, being up all night. But if that's the main problem, when you get the full evaluation, they'll figure out, oh, your memory's normal. But I'm uh, more worried about the other way. I'm more worried about the false negatives because there's no follow-up for those. And so your character, Sue, has extreme anxiety and, and some depression over the suggestion that she might have dementia and comes to realize throughout that it, actually this anxiety and depression could be mimicking dementia. And you then talk about all of the other factors that can affect our memory that we might not realize. You say one of the most common causes of memory impairment are the side effects of medication, whether prescription or over-the-counter. And she's been taking sleep aids. So maybe you could talk about that, just some of, some of the elements that we might not realize in our day-to-day life that might be affecting our memory and might, might be mimicking signs of dementia. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are many, you know, I think it's worth starting with, with medications. And the, the preface to my talking about medications is that if there's a medication that is prescribed by your doctor, it's very important to continue taking that uh, until you at least have a discussion with the doctor uh, about your concerns of the side effects and you and the doctor together can talk about whether, you know, you can either go off it or um, reduce the dose or have something else. You would never want to simply uh, stop a medication without consulting your doctor if the doctor prescribed it. So with that preamble, um, 
sleep medications are one classes of medications that can interfere with the memory. Uh, there are two main types that people use. One are the benzodiazepine medications, which are medications that are like Valium or Ambien or Xanax. And those medications interfere with memory in everybody. Those are actually the class of medications that are given to people when they have a colonoscopy so they don't remember the colonoscopy. So they really do interfere with, with the memory. And, you know, I think we used to think, well, if you take it at bedtime, they won't have any effect by the next morning. But now we know that for most people, they do have an effect the next morning. And it can interfere with the memory. And then the other class of uh, medications are the antihistamine medications. So these are medications that um, can be helpful if someone has an allergic reaction or chronic allergies, but the older forms of these, so things like uh, diphenhydramine, whose um, brand name is Benadryl, um, the medication in Tylenol PM, the medication in uh, NyQuil, all of those have uh, antihistamines that are uh, sedating. And so, of course, that's good to help you fall asleep. But again, there can be lingering effects that can still be there the next day. So we do recommend that people reduce the use of those medications as much as possible. And I should say, you know, if somebody has to use any of the medications that I've just described, you know, once a month or something like that, I certainly don't think that that's a huge deal. But, but, I, but I, even just having the awareness, right, to know that maybe it is because some of these other things I'm doing and not just think, okay, I'm, I'm losing my mind, you know, I'm losing my memory. Absolutely. And that is, you know, the other reason that we wrote the book is to empower people to figure out, you know, whether their memory is normal or not and what are all the different things that could be interfering, including... Uh, side effects of medications. So you talk a lot about diet as well and that some of the deficiencies in our diet, vitamin B12 and D deficiencies might be causing some symptoms of dementia or memory loss. And then also events in our lives like Lyme disease or if, if seizures are, are involved or if we've had a head injury or maybe we're drinking a little too much alcohol or using, using um, you know, not only over-the-counter drugs but maybe some illegal drugs that are affecting our memory. Yeah, no, a absolutely. All the different things that that you mentioned, you know, can be a problem. And, you know, one of the things that I think is is good that we're discussing all these different things is that uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, people, you know, after the age of, I don't know, 50 years of age, if they are experiencing memory problems, many people immediately worry, oh my God, I'm developing Alzheimer's, I don't want to go to the doctor, I hear they can't do anything about it. But all the different things we're discussing are all treatable things. They're all things that you can do something about. So let's talk a little bit about Jack, because I think I felt really sorry for Jack. Here's Jack, kind of like just over middle age. He's feeling pretty good about life. He's kind of happy. And then, you know, he thinks his mind is just fine. But one of his friends says, oh, you know, I've noticed this and that. You better go to the doctor. And um, turns out then he's diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, um, which... Um, 
the statistics are 50% will remain stable or improve just on their own. And so I'm wondering, would Jack have been better off just going through life, uh, maybe a little less educated on the facts of memory and memory loss? Or was it a good thing that he went and got checked out? Yeah, and that's a great question. But I uh, feel that, that Jack and others are much better off to understand uh, what's going on uh, with their memory. And the thing about somebody with mild cognitive impairment is, although uh, there are not medications that are uh, currently approved by the FDA to treat it, there are medications that work. The same medications that we use for individuals with mild Alzheimer's disease actually improve uh, the person's thinking and memory with mild cognitive impairment. And the degree of improvement is approximately equal to making their memory like it was about a year ago. So, you know, so it really can uh, be helpful, I think, for Jack to to know what's going on and to have his memory uh, get better uh, with the medication and also, you know, it helps Jack to uh, plan for the future. So he knows, you know, what, uh, what's coming down the pike, and he and his daughter can, uh, can make plans. All right, well, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Budson, and we are talking about his new book, Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. And when we come back, we'll start with a conversation around uh, normal memory and normal memory inaccuracies, because it turns out there are quite a few, and then they're normal. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported, non-commercial, community Radio. We're streaming live at kdpifm.org 24-7. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Budson, and we're talking about his new book, Seven Steps to Managing Your Memory. So, Dr. Budson, what, let's talk about the, the normal memory and the normal memory inaccuracies. Um, maybe starting with just, I'll, I'll list off some of them, and then we can look at them in depth. But like forgetting names, that can be normal. Um, mixing up real memories with wrong elements of time, place, and people. And incorporating suggested information into your recollection. And then the present knowledge affecting past experiences, especially those last two. I thought those were two that people may not realize that that's going on fairly frequently in our lives. Yeah, no, it, it's really interesting. And, and I'll tell you um, one way that I think about it that I think will help uh, one to sort of get a handle on why do we have all these sort of false memories. So we used to think that, you know, memory is, of course, to remember things. And if our memory system did not remember things perfectly, well, it just means it's not a perfect system. It just doesn't work as good as, say, a tape recorder you know, or a video recorder. But we now understand that, in fact, what we think our memories are for, why they evolved, is to help us to flexibly, imaginatively envision future events. And if you think that that's what they're for, then all of a sudden it doesn't seem so odd that 
if somebody is suggesting uh, information that it can possibly become incorporated into our memories or that we might tend to view uh, past events the way we view uh, the present because all of those things would help us if we're trying to imagine a new scenario. Okay, I just want to say, like, that's the best thing I've heard in, like, I don't know, decades. Because the thought that our brains are actually constructed and the part of that our memories are so that we can creatively imagine our future and then make it so is, is pretty fantastic in, in my, my world. Good. So... There are times when someone we know well may be walking toward us and we're having the thought, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I have no idea what their name is. You know, how does that happen and what kind of, what part of the brain is responsible for that? Yeah, so, so that is a, uh, it's, it's like a search and retrieval problem. And we have, uh, so it's very interesting. So when we see that person coming towards us, so the visual cortex in our brain, which is in the occipital lobes in the back of the brain, is lighting up, and it's able to sort of do a pattern match and recognize that individual. Now, the name of the person is somewhere else in the brain. It's in the anterior temporal lobe, and it, it's a, a situation where uh, sometimes, of course, most of the time, in fact, the name <clears throat> pops up automatically. But when it doesn't pop up automatically, then it takes a effortful process to be able to uh, retrieve it. And one of the things that's interesting about that is one of the most common things that happens when we're in that situation, and I think it happens to everyone from time to time, is that we end up making it worse for ourselves. And one way we make it worse is because we get anxious, and if we get anxious, it makes it harder for our brains to function. And the other thing that happens is, you know, let's say, you know, the name is uh, Ellie, you know, and we keep thinking of like Ellen. And, you know, we keep saying, you know, to ourselves, uh, Ellen, Ellen, is it Ellen? I think it's Ellen. It turns out that, you know, having that wrong name actually blocks the uh, correct name. And so we talk about in the book, you know, some of the strategies that tend to be more successful, like number one, relaxing, and number two, um, you know, trying to think of other things we know about the person rather than trying to keep thinking of that same name. Well, it's funny because I can remember as a child, my dad always saying when we were trying to think of a word or a name, you know, what would it be if you weren't trying to think of it? We'd all sort of roll our eyes at him, but you know, he was right. Yeah. That, that was Sometimes parents time. are right. <laughs> And, and so connected with that, too, I'm thinking when you're repeating the wrong name, you're also making it harder for yourself the next time you're trying to remember that person's name because it's another one of the elements you talk about where when we're recalling a memory, if we recall it inaccurately, we are actually changing the memory that we're storing for later on. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And that's another thing about our, our memory system is that... It's uh, again, it's not a flaw in the system. It's made that you can sort of update memories. But whenever you retrieve a memory, you lay it down anew. And so if you are retrieving it and incorporating wrong or mixed up information, then you're, you're, you're storing that mixed up information into the memory. 
And so oftentimes we're mixing up our real memories with wrong elements. And I think especially if you're from a large family, you'll come to realize that there are some things that you think happened to you that actually happened to one of your siblings or, or the other way around. Absolutely. Those old uh, family stories are, are just uh, uh, one example. I mean, I can uh, tell you there are you know, a number of events in my own life that you know, I, I sort of developed this little story in my mind of exactly, you know, what happened, you know, when my wife and I, why, why did we decide to go to the Canadian Rockies uh, for one trip and we didn't decide to go to Egypt? I was convinced it was because we were concerned about some terrorism that was going on in Egypt at the time. And I was really convinced that I was right. And then, you know, we like looked it up at the internet and we looked at the different days and we looked at the date they were going on the trip. And I realized that my wife was completely correct that in fact, uh, you know, the thing I was concerned about, you know, the, the event that happened, uh, the terrorism in, that happened in Egypt was actually after we had gone on the trip. So it couldn't have had anything to do with us making it. So, so uh, it really is common to, uh, to have these sort of mixed up memories. Well, and you know, you think about our generation, and we just kind of could go along with whatever past we created, whereas the future generations, they've documented everything. So I think there's going to be a lot more anxiety over whether or not they're losing their memories, because there's going to be documentation available for, for every moment. Yeah, well, that, well, that's very interesting. Well, well, hopefully, there'll also be a lot more education through, through shows like this, so people understand, okay, it's okay if I don't remember everything perfectly. In fact, you know, who knows, maybe um, the way that none of us really worry about remembering, say, phone numbers and addresses and things like that, right? We just store them all on our phones. We don't have to memorize them anymore. Maybe people won't even feel they need to memorize their past anymore. They'll just look back in my, in my Facebook timeline or whatever the new, the, you know, the new next thing is, and that's how they'll know what happened to them in the past. So do you feel like there are negative consequences or aspects to the facts that we don't have to remember as much information or figure out you know, how to get from here to there? Are we not flexing our memory muscles in the way that we need to? Well, there, there's no doubt that you know, uh, say 2,000 years ago, people were much better at, you know, memorizing a long text uh, verbatim compared to how we are uh, today. But there's all sorts of things that we all need to know uh, today that people didn't need to know in the past, like, you know, not only how to remember all your million passwords for your your different uh, programs and applications, but how to use the latest, you know, iPhone operating system or Android software or this computer program or that computer program. So we're all using our our brains. We're using our our memories. I think it's just different. I don't think it's actually better or worse. I think it's just different. So one thing that comes up a lot in the section of the book regarding Sue is her ability to pay attention and whether or not she's paying attention. And the seed is planted with her that maybe you, it's not so much the memory, but maybe you weren't paying attention at the time of the event. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, you know, the most important things that we talk about is in order to form and retrieve memories, you need a couple different parts of your brain to work together. And the way I think about it, I think of it like a filing system analogy. So your frontal lobes, they're sort of like the file clerk 
of the uh, memory system. That's the part that brings the information in from the outside world. And then it gets stored in the hippocampus. That's deep in the, in the temporal lobes. And that's where the new memories are actually stored. And so with Sue, it turns out that her problem is that her frontal lobe file clerk has trouble concentrating, paying attention. Some of that is just due to normal aging because as we all get older, our frontal lobe file clerk gets a little older as well and doesn't pay attention as well. And then the other thing, as you pointed out, that happens to Sue is uh, she gets anxious. She was even anxious before she went to the doctor, and then she got even a little bit more anxious uh, afterwards. And if one is feeling uh, anxious, um, it's hard to pay attention. And that's both uh, just biologically because of the changes in neurotransmitters uh, in the brain when we are anxious. But it's also just true if you are thinking about something that's bothering you, you're not going to be able to focus on uh, what you need to remember. So let's talk a little bit about Alzheimer's. You say in the book um, that it is not a normal part of aging. And it's also something that doesn't have at this point a cure uh, and, and can be difficult to, at least in the initial stages, to identify. How important is it to identify it and how much does it matter to identify it as early as possible? Yeah, I think it's, it's very important to, uh, to identify it early. And so one reason is that, you know, I mentioned with Jack that, you know, we got him on uh, a medication that helped to turn the clock back on his memory problems by about a year, by about 12 months. Well, uh, it turns out that those medicines that are available, although they're not cures, they are treatments, and they work better when people are diagnosed early. If I'm seeing someone in the moderate stage of Alzheimer's dementia, it's more that I can turn the clock back on their memory problems about six months. So the medications, in a very real sense, work about twice as well if I can get them started uh, early. It also gives people more time to, you know, figure out what do you want to do while you're thinking in memory or doing well. Do you want to take a trip somewhere? Do you want to... Um, you know, write your memoirs, you know, whatever you want to do, it sort of gives you that time to plan, to know what's, uh, to know what's going on. And uh, I, I think that's, and is, know, it, knowledge is power. Is Alzheimer's dementia different than other types of dementia? Are different things happening in the brain with Alzheimer's? Alzheimer's? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So in Alzheimer's, uh, there are two different types of pathologies that occur in the brain. Uh, one are these plaques, which are made up of an abnormal protein called beta amyloid. And we believe that this is the first thing that happens in the disease. And then the second thing that happens are they form tangles, and the tangles form inside the cell. So we think that the plaques form first, they're outside the cells, but they end up damaging the cells and the damaged cells then build up these tangles, and that's what ultimately kills the cells. And, and do you feel like, is, is the current thought that the tangles are a reaction to the plaque? Are they trying to, to, to actually do something in response to the plaque, or are they are just a, a consequence? 
You know, I think we think it's it's mainly a, a consequence. So there are many different disorders that all cause tangles, that all have problems with this abnormal protein tau. Tau is normally a protein that helps to hold part of the cells together. The uh, cells have what's called microtubules that um, uh, allow the transport of nutrients from the cell body in the center to the distant processes, the axons and dendrites. And uh, people think of them, the tau, as like railroad ties that are holding these microtubules together. And it's when the cell gets damaged that the tau becomes dislodged and it's sticky and it sticks to itself. And when you get enough of it, uh, then it sticks and forms these big clumps that we can see under the microscope and call tangles. And is testing for Alzheimer's different than testing for other forms of dementia? The general uh, thing that we do when we test for dementia, we start by trying to rule out all of the reversible causes. So we take a history to find out if somebody is taking medications that can, <clears throat> that can interfere with uh, thinking and memory. And we do blood work to make sure that people don't have a deficiency of vitamin D or vitamin B12 or that they don't have a, a thyroid disorder or some common infections. And then we do a brain scan to look and see if they have any surprises like a large stroke or they have too much fluid in the brain or or something like that. And of course, we do pencil and paper testing to see how their thinking and memory are doing. So those pieces that I've just mentioned would be the same for every single uh, dementia evaluation. But then there are some very specialized tests that one can do to specifically look for Alzheimer's disease. And these are tests that are not necessarily done routinely, and I do not think they're needed for a straightforward case of Alzheimer's. But if there's something unusual uh, about the case, such as for uh, you know a patient uh, who is only, say, 55 years old that looks like they have Alzheimer's, it, it's unusual at such a young age to have Alzheimer's, but it does happen then it would be important to do a special test either um, by obtaining spinal fluid through a lumbar puncture or a spinal tap or doing uh, a special type of a, a PET scan, a special type of brain scan. And in each case, we can look for evidence of the abnormal collection of beta amyloid. One of the things you said that may reduce the likelihood or the risk of um, having Alzheimer's is social, being socially active. What do you think is the connection there, that why being socially active may be one of the, the factors that affect Alzheimer's? Yeah, that is a great question. And the short answer is no one knows for sure. But if you allow me to speculate... Uh, I would I, encourage you to speculate. <laughs> I think that... Um, you know, our brains evolved for social interactions. Our brains did not evolve, for example, to do crossword puzzles. So when somebody does crossword puzzles, um, a small part of our brain uh, lights up really, really powerfully, but the rest of the brain is relatively quiet. But when we are in a social interaction, every part of our brain is uh, glowing and lighting up and talking to each other. And I, I do think 
that uh, those social activities can help with that. Um, the other uh, thing about social activities is, you know, in general, hopefully it's a good interaction, it, it makes us feel good about ourselves. And there's actually a lot of evidence that we perform better when we feel good about ourselves, and we're more likely to engage in activities such as uh, exercise and, and doing healthy activities when we're feeling good about ourselves. Well, that was one of the areas where I felt sorry for Jack when his daughter was making him go on the computer, which he said he just hated. You know, he, he didn't want to do it at all, and, and she, he just wanted to go out and play hockey, and she, she makes him go on the computer for 10 minutes. And he says it wasn't as bad as he, he had thought, but, but uh, you're just like, oh, let poor Jack go play hockey. And, and he was yeah. doing mind games. So let's talk about that whole industry a little bit, the brain sure. training anti-aging industry. Um, you say it's among the fastest growing, and it's forecasted to reach between 4 and $10 billion by 2020, which is not very far in the future. I know. It's, it's just amazing. And, you know, uh, I will be the first to cheer when there is proof that one of these brain training activities is actually beneficial to the brain. But uh, as of uh, now, there really have been none of them that I think have passed muster in terms of showing that they benefit overall brain health. Now, you'll get better at the games, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, and if you enjoy them, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't want to see people uh, like poor Jack there, you know, painfully doing the computer games rather than, you know, taking a walk with a friend when all the data shows taking a walk with a friend would be much better than sitting in a chair and doing the computer games. So what strategies and lifestyle changes can we use and do to help our memories? There are so many uh, different things that that one can can use. And as you know, we, we talk about, you know, a, a, a million of them in the book. Uh, three of them that I think are worth, um, you know, e emphasizing. Um, well, I guess just to start with the lifestyle changes, you know, uh, uh, exercise, exercise, exercise. So the studies show aerobic exercise at least 30 minutes a day um, is, uh, is absolutely helpful. And uh, I already mentioned earlier that it can actually increase your brain size. It can help your memory, uh, very beneficial. And uh, many of the studies were done with things as simple as walking. So you don't have to be running marathons. Uh, even walking is great. Uh, the Mediterranean diet has been shown to be uh, beneficial. And uh, uh, that is uh, something very simple that includes fish and olive oil and avocado, fruits and vegetables, nuts and beans, uh, whole grains, and maybe a little bit of red wine uh, thrown in there that can be helpful. And then for strategies, the, the three that um, are some of my favorites are uh, don't delay. And what that means is if somebody is uh, telling you something that you want to remember, you know, write it down right then, or if you've gone to the trouble of setting an alarm to tell you uh, when to take a medication, even if you're in the middle of an engaging conversation, uh, don't put it off and say, oh, I'll take my medicine after I'm done, you know, with this conversation, because you might forget. So don't delay, take the medicine right now. Uh, the next golden rule is keep it simple and 
So if you're inspired and you want to get organized and you're going to rush out and buy a calendar, don't buy four calendars, you know, one for home and one for work and one for your purse. Just get one calendar because when you uh, have a complicated system with multiple calendars and you're copying things back and forth, that's when errors can happen. And then the last uh, thing that uh, uh, is worth emphasizing is make it routine. Make it routine. And so the idea is if you're having trouble finding your keys, your glasses, your wallet, your purse, if you always put those things in the same place, then you'll always know where they are. And if you get into the habit, get into the routine of putting your keys and glasses down in the same place, uh, it'll happen uh, automatically. I I loved in seven steps to managing your memory that it is a balanced approach and a a balanced set of potential life-changing activities. And, and, And not that one has to make these drastic changes. You know, you don't have to run a marathon. And it may be if you if you're not going to enjoy running a marathon, it may not be beneficial, because it may actually be depleting your chi rather than raising it and that Jack can eat some dark chocolate with his new Mediterranean meal. He, he doesn't Absolutely. have to forego all the pleasurable aspects of life because you know, our brain's pretty much the pleasure center. Absolutely. No, I no, I totally agree. And and you know there are other books out there that say, oh, if you just eat lots of this food, you're going to be cured, or if you just stay away from that food, you know, you'll never develop Alzheimer's disease. And unfortunately, there just isn't scientific data to support either of those radical approaches. So you're right. This book has a lot of things that are, you know, a little bit more mild, a little bit more sort of common sense, but uh, but you know, they're all evidence-based and, you know, and hopefully when you uh, combine things like diet, exercise, using strategies, using memory aids, uh, understanding a little bit more about memory so, so you don't get worried uh, when you have a little slip of memory, uh, you know, you'll end up uh, having better memory in daily life and uh, getting along better and happier. We talked at the beginning of the show about how much the science around the brain has changed. How much has the science around memory and memory loss changed in the last decade? And how much do you expect it to change in the next decade? Yeah, it has really changed uh, dramatically. I mean, some of the things that we really have understood better now than we did before include uh, what I mentioned about uh, what our memories, what we think they're for, about flexibly imagining the future, uh, about uh, how just how powerful our ability to grow new brain cells with uh, exercise and I'm very excited about how things may uh, change in the future, about you know, how uh, we can potentially work uh, better and faster uh, with our uh, technology. Um, I, I, I think there's all sorts of things that uh, are going to be exciting in the future. And you know, knock on wood, uh, I'm hopeful that we're going to have a disease-modifying medication for Alzheimer's disease in the next decade as well. And that will be very exciting. All right. Well, Dr. Andrew Budson, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking and sharing insights into your new book, Seven Steps to Manage Your Memory, What's Normal, What's Not, and What to Do About It. And that's co-written with Maureen K. O'Connor. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. It was really wonderful speaking with you and, and a pleasure to read your book. Thanks so much.
All right. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. It was great talking to you. And I really enjoyed yeah. the book. I wasn't sure because I'm a bit of an empath. And I was like, <laughs> if I want all that in my head about how all that stuff works and what's happening. But 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 uh, it was great. Oh, oh, good. I'm so pleased. So you so you you are someone who enjoyed the stories. I, I take it. You know, I I went I I skipped back and forth. Um, uh-huh. I was glad to have the stories in there, and um, I there were points where I, I just focused on the uh, the the, the very specific content about it because I'm kind of research oriented. Um, but I definitely think having the stories in there was a was a wise choice. Yeah, great, yeah. great. And, well, and I'll it was just well you, written you, and well formed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'll just tell you, it, it was a real pleasure uh, talking with you. I've had a bunch of interviews now, and it's not always so easy and so so pleasurable. So, so thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you. Okay, good luck with the book. Okay, Bye-bye. thank you. Take care.